your Bibles this morning to the 10th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. If you're warm, take your coats off. I don't want you dozing this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. We come this morning in the first 18 verses of the 10th chapter of Hebrews to the conclusion of the doctrinal portion of the epistle to the Hebrews. Paul will end at the 18th verse his doctrinal arguments showing that Jesus Christ, the new covenant, the gospel, New Testament ordinances, heaven, is all superior to everything under the old covenant. He's been arguing that from the first verse and he ends it at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 18. From that point we have exhortation and practical instruction that will take us to the end of the book. Oh, he may slip in a thing or two here or there, but for the most part, the doctrinal arguments that the gospel is superior to the Old Testament ends at Hebrews 10.18. So what we have in the 18 verses we want to cover this morning are the summarizing, concluding arguments of Paul's comparison between the Jews' religion of the Old Testament and the spiritual religion that Jesus Christ and the apostles brought in. That's what we want to cover this morning. <clears throat> this passage will try to tie together the things we've learned so far on a doctrinal basis about the New Testament. Looking at verse 1, and you'll notice that when we concluded chapter 9 last week, the 28th verse made reference to the second appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ as if it was summing up everything. I mean, Paul's covered it all from chapters 1 through 9, and he ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ in that 28th verse of chapter 9. Now in chapter 10, for 18 verses, he just gives us one more short snapshot where he tries to tie everything together. He's already proved his points, he just repeats them. He summarizes them here in chapter 10. Verse 1. I want to read through the fourth verse because it provides the first little segment. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again, made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Very little in the way of argument here, but a whole lot in the way of review, as Paul summarizes the points he's made so far. He starts off by saying that the Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow of forgiveness and could never take away sin. Remember, you're a Jew. He is dealing with your whole religion. Everything you've been accustomed to for years. If you're 15, you've been at it 15 years. If you're 75, you've been at it a while longer. And now Paul is saying everything you were doing was a shadow. Now a shadow isn't much. A shadow is not much. It's a very vague resemblance of a thing. 
What are some of the other words that we have read in the book of Hebrews that describe the Old Testament? It is not only called a shadow, it is called an a figure, a pattern, an example, a similitude, and a signification. There were signs given, there were similitudes, patterns, figures, examples, and shadows. Look at Colossians chapter 2, where the apostle in another place teaches the very same lesson about the Jews' religion. Colossians chapter 2. However, in Colossae, he's not speaking to Jews, but to Gentiles. And he's warning them against Judaizing philosophers that would come back and try to put them back under touch-not-taste-not-handle-not religion. And he's showing these Gentiles that that old system of Jewish religion, which you Gentiles are very intrigued by, very interested in, knowing that it was God's religion, that is a shadow. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. I want to begin reading. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What does that mean? <laughs> they were Gentiles not only naturally, but they were Gentiles spiritually. Hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Meat. Did the Jews have laws regarding meat? Indeed. What you could eat, what you couldn't eat. Clean animals versus unclean animals. What sacrifices you could eat, what sacrifices the priests were to eat, what sacrifices were to be completely burned up in a burnt offering. Did they have judgments regarding drink? were there things they were to drink at certain times. They had their wine offerings that they brought to the Levitical priesthood. They had drink offerings. They had holy days, the Passover, the Day of Atonement were holy days. They had new moons, you know, the Jewish calendar of months. They had the Sabbath days, annual Sabbaths, weekly Sabbaths, lots of Sabbaths. Sabbaths beginning and ending, the week-long Passover feast. But all of that is called a shadow. Now, when a denomination that got its start in Battle Creek, Michigan, looked into the Bible, they thought that they ought to go back under the Old Testament meat, drink, holy days, and Sabbath days. Anybody know who I'm talking about yet? Seventh-day Adventists. Let me tell you why they, what, why you ought to remember they started in Battle Creek, Michigan. What is the cold cereal capital of the world? Battle Creek, Michigan. What company is headquartered in Battle Creek, Michigan? Kellogg's. What trust owns Kellogg's? 
Seventh-day Adventists. Grape nuts and the others that came out of Battle Creek, Michigan, were invented and promoted by the Seventh-day Adventists in an effort to get away from breakfast meats. What do you usually eat? What kind of meat do you eat for breakfast? A lot of pork, sausage, bacon, and so forth. Not only are Seventh-day Adventists abstainers from pork according to the Jewish law, many of them are abstainers from meat. They are the ones that invented and promoted cold cereals for breakfast. And, you know, cereals back then were eaten more than just at breakfast. And I know some of you do the same thing. When your kids come in or you want a bedtime snack, you go after cereals. That is a group of people who looked into the Word of God and saw that Old Testament religion and fell in love with it. And we've been tempted to do that at times. While we look back at some of those laws and we look, we think to ourselves, if I'm really going to please God, be spiritual and have a holy life, I better live like the Old Testament. And what does Paul say in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17? It is all a shadow. The Seventh-day Adventists are worshiping in a shadow religion. Isn't that honoring? Doesn't Paul speak high and have respect under their religion? It's a shadow religion. There's no reality to it. When you look at the meat, the drink, the holy days, and the Sabbath days, those things were shadows. Let me make this point. Every time Paul uses the word the law, in comparing the gospel to the law and showing that the gospel is better than the law. It's greater than the law. It's superior to the law. He does not mean the law. And I had this question asked recently. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That law wasn't changed. That law existed before the law of Moses. The law that Paul is setting aside is the ceremonial law. Meats, drink, Sabbath days, holy days were all ceremonial observances. Men before the law of Moses did not observe those special days. Now the Sabbath day, someone says, what about the Sabbath day? Was not that instituted prior to the law of Moses? Yes, the particular weekly Sabbath was instituted before the law of Moses. But nowhere in the New Testament does Paul ever commend us to observe the Sabbath. And the only time he makes reference to it, right here, what's he call it? He just lumps all Sabbath days together. He does not draw a distinction between weekly Sabbath or annual Sabbath. And he calls those Sabbath days a shadow. There, there are also some of us who didn't exactly follow the Seventh-day Adventists, but who read a lot of the Puritans. And guess what the Puritans want to do when it comes to the Sabbath day? They want to run back into a shadow religion and have a 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. Sabbath observance just like the Old Testament Jews. And all we have on it is right here. As far as New Testament epistolary instruction from the Apostle Paul, it's a shadow religion. Coming back to Hebrews chapter 10, how many of you believe that men are born sinners. How many of you believe that men are born sinners? 
If you don't believe it, listen. I'll, I will have a moment of silence. And that is not to make light of anyone's child because they're all the same. I've had five of them. You can hear the anger, the malice, the hatred, the bitterness very easily if you've got two ears. I know you're hearing it. We might as well comment on it. <laughs> and the mother ought not to feel embarrassed, if that's possible. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come. What are the good things to come? All the things prophesied in the Old Testament, spoken of in the New Covenant, they are the blessings of the new covenant. They are the good things to come. Not to come for us, but to come from an Old Testament perspective of the Hebrews. They knew that there was a lot to come. If you've ever read the book of Isaiah, how many times does it shift to this description of the Gentiles and all nations flowing unto Mount Zion and into Jerusalem and offering up acceptable sacrifices of righteousness and peace? That sounds like a good time to come because it sure wasn't occurring when it was written. Nebuchadnezzar was about to lay the place flat. A lot of good things to come are found in the Old Testament prophesying of the blessing of Jesus Christ through the gospel in the New Testament. I like how Paul says that the Old Testament was a shadow and not the very image of those things. An image in the Bible is something very much like the real thing. There were lots of images made. Why, Moses made the image of a serpent. He made a brass serpent, and it looked like a serpent because it was an image. An image is a very close likeness to a thing. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Is the man Christ Jesus that you can see very God? But you see, brethren, He is the image of the invisible God. He is as close to the real thing as God will let you see as far as an image. An image is very close. Now, a shadow. If you take an object and put it before a light and look at the shadow, can you observe its details? They're lost. And Paul is saying the law wasn't even an image. I mean, it, it wasn't even close, Hebrews. It wasn't even close to the real thing. It was only a shadow of the real thing. And those a shadow religion, how much sin do you think it can put away? And so Paul goes on to say, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. If it's a shadow religion, if there's no reality in it, if it's only looking forward to good things, the forgiveness of sin, obviously it can't make worshipers perfect. It can't put away sin. It can't save men from hell. It can't save men from a convicted conscience. It wasn't able to do that. The adverb continually there in that verse is not to be applied to the verb make, but to be applied to the verb offered. When you read through that verse, it may be confusing. You may read it, which they offered year by year, continually make. That's not where you need to make the break. It's that they offered continually. Continually is modifying the word offered. Those priests were doing it all the time, continually. Offering sacrifices that could never 
make the comers thereunto perfect. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? I love Paul's use of questions. If you want to become more proficient at persuading men, learn to use rhetorical questions. That's scriptural. Jesus Christ used questions. The baptism of John. Was it of men or was it of God? Now, that's all you needed to say. Because it put the people that heard that question into a dilemma of what they were to answer. Paul here, as has been his practice in this book, remember the first couple of chapters, all the rhetorical questions? Here he has one to the Hebrews. If it's a shadow religion, and I've proved that, Hebrews, and since, it's a, since it is a shadow religion, if it had any substance or reality to it at all, wouldn't it have ceased to be offered? If Old Testament sacrifices did any good, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Because at some point, wouldn't sins have been expiated? Wouldn't sins have been put away so that we could quit offering this sacrifice? That's just a question for them. And can you imagine a Hebrew mind? It's so obvious. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. That means the answer is obvious. The reason that those sacrifices did not stop is because they did not put away sin. And Paul answers the question in the second part of the second verse by saying, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But because they had conscience of sins, those sacrifices had to be offered over and over again. Those Jews kept coming back over and over again, trying to free their consciences from a burden of sin and never able to do it because it was a shadow religion. There was no reality. There was no true forgiveness of sins involved under the law. Verse 3, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Sacrifices under the Old Testament were slain in such a way as to make lots of blood. Because blood was the focal point of Old Testament religion. Blood gave the evidence of life ending. Death. The soul that sinneth, it must die. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Therefore, to show death, you let lots of blood be shown visibly. It was a religion of blood. But it was blood that brought sin to remembrance. They were sacrifices of remembrance. But when Jesus Christ shed His blood, notice what He said. Matthew 26 and verse 39. I don't want 39, I want 28. When He took the cup at the supper with His disciples, Matthew 26, 28. For this is My blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins the remission of sins. The blood of animals was shed for the remembrance of sins. Is there any difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? They shed blood for the remembrance of sins. Jesus Christ shed His blood for the remission of sins. The putting away of sin. A great difference took place. But the animal sacrifices, according to Hebrews 10.3, simply made 
a remembrance of sin. Verse 4, Paul just says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Now, he's already established that in Hebrews chapter 2, where it tells us that Jesus Christ had to take on him the nature of man by the seed of Abraham. He couldn't take the nature of angels. He had to take the nature of man. And neither could the blood of goats and calves and bullocks and bulls take away sin. And do you think the Hebrews knew that? They did, but it's the only religion God had given them. And in this day, they had run to an excess and an an erroneous view of those sacrifices. There were Jews that believed they did put away sin. But when you stop and think about it, could an animal dying save a man? There is such an infinite distance between a man created in the image of God and a beast. No, they can't put away sin. And Paul just makes the point. He's proved it already in the first nine chapters. Now we come to the second part of this first half of Hebrews 10, which runs from verse 5 down through verse 10. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The first word of verse 5 tells us that he's drawing a conclusion. Wherefore, given the fact the Old Testament is a shadow religion, given the fact it can never make the worshipers thereunto perfect, given that it does not purge a conscience, given that it cannot put away sin, given that it only makes a remembrance of sin, there must be something better. There's got to be a real sacrifice somewhere or God will not be satisfied and all men will be under the condemnation of sin. Wherefore, as a result of the Old Testament religion being inadequate to put away sin, wherefore, when he cometh into the world... Now, who came into the world, brethren? The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Paul said, of whom I am chief. That should be comfort to anyone who thinks themselves a sinner. Paul said, I am chief. You say, well, Paul was just saying that because he felt that way at the moment. He was a melancholy and he was in a depression and he thought that maybe he was the worst sinner that God had ever saved. No, God chose Paul specially that he should be a pattern to them that afterwards should believe on Jesus Christ unto everlasting life. Paul is a pattern. He was the greatest enemy of Jesus Christ that God ever purposed to save. Because he said that God chose him as a pattern. He was the worst case. He went out of his way in the name of Jesus of Nazareth to do damage to all those that believed on Jesus Christ. 
he was an intentional, presumptuous enemy of Jesus Christ. That was a short rabbit trail. When he cometh into the world, Jesus Christ said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Where did Jesus Christ say that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Psalm 40. Not recorded in the Gospels. At some point, when Jesus Christ came into the world, He spoke these words to His Father. And they're recorded for us in Psalm 40, verses 5 through 8, as we read this morning, in prophecy. Wherefore, because Old Testament religion could not put away sin, wherefore Jesus Christ came into this world to put away sin as a substitute sacrifice for all those shadowy sacrifices. He was the real sacrifice, the true sacrifice, the sacrifice of God. Now it says here in the 8th verse that sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, God had no pleasure in them. There's two ways in which God doesn't take pleasure in sacrifices. The first way is in when, when sacrifices are offered hypocritically with an unrighteous offerer. Sacrifices are not pleasing to God. Look at Isaiah 1. We have a whole pile of passages we could look at. We'll just look at the first chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. God speaks very kindly to His nation of Israel. I speak as a fool. In verse 10, Hear ye the word of the Lord, Isaiah 1.10, Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. God calls His people Sodom and Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. There's the solution to the whole passage. Your hands are full of blood. Those Jews were guilty of sin. They did not come with a repentant, submissive, contrite, broken heart attitude with their sacrifices. And when you come without the proper heart attitude, no matter how much you might offer, it's an abomination to God. He hates it. It's a stench in His nostrils. He calls it the dung of your solemn feast in the book of Malachi. And He says, I'm going to spread it on your faces. And He said that to His priests in Malachi chapter 2. 
God is not pleased with all outward external religion unless you approach it with the proper heart attitude. Why did I pray this morning that God would forgive us of our sins, quicken our affections this morning, and by His Spirit prepare our hearts for this worship? What we're doing right now is not pleasing to God if we are not here with the proper heart attitude. Outward form is an abomination to Him. It would be better not to come. But if you don't come, that's a sin. So where does that leave you? Get right, brethren. Get right with God. Cleanse your hands. Just go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 1. The next verse says, Wash ye, make you clean. The Bible says we ought to purify our hearts. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. You do that by confessing your sins and forsaking those areas in your life where you have been guilty before God. In that way, sacrifices are not pleasing to God. But there's another way sacrifices aren't pleasing. And that is, the blood of a bullock just doesn't mean much to God. <laughs> That's pretty plain. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and verse 39. You say, well, then why did God tell them to do it? Because he wanted, to he wanted them to have a shadow religion for 2,000 years. That's why. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. We'll take it up with him in a few years. I think it sounds great. You know why? Because I'm on this side of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, I'd hate to live on the other side and hear about this side. He did it in the right order, didn't he? He left them locked up in a system of religion where all they had were shadows. Acts chapter 13, verse 39. By him all that believe are justified from all things. Brethren, if a man believes, what does that prove about him? According to what I just read. Justified when? When he believes? All that believe, present tense, are justified. Perfect tense, passive verb. They are justified before they believe. All that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. The book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, guess what it couldn't do? It couldn't justify God. And when it justifies sinners before God, it makes sinners righteous in God's sight. It makes them legally righteous and fit for His presence. Therefore, the law of Moses was not pleasing to God because it did nothing to satisfy Him or to make an atonement for sin. Hebrews 10. And that's the thought, definitely, that the apostle is making when he says, sacrifice, offering, burnt offering, sacrifices for sin, they did not please God. And God didn't require them. Now, wait a minute. God didn't require them? I thought the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers required animal sacrifices. Only for an outward form of religion. God never required those things for legal justification and satisfaction for sin before Him in any true or eternal way. Paul's making that great division, just like we had to do with the covenants. That the old covenant was simply the outward form of religion. It had no reality or no spiritual value. Animal sacrifices were not required by God for any spiritual value. They were simply required as an outward form of bondage 
in the way of a complex, complicated, condemning religion. And that's what it was made for, is to make all men sinners and guilty before Almighty God. Wherefore, verse 5, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Why don't you wager a guess at how many sacrifices were offered under the Old Testament? How many, did Sol how many sheep did Solomon cut loose with at one offering when he dedicated his temple? How many remember? 120,000 sheep. You say, how'd they burn it all? Remember his altar was 30 feet by 30 feet. 900, it was slightly bigger than the one in the tabernacle, brethren. Slightly bigger. The one in the tabernacle was seven and a half by seven and a half. About 52 or 53 square feet. Solomon's was 900. And he threw those things on there and as fast as he could throw the sheep up, guess what God did? Sucked him up with fire from heaven. What a glorious day. Thousands. 22,000 bullocks. If you want to take some bigger animals. Same day. A tremendous offering of sacrifices. But they did sacrifices every day. A lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. Bullocks all the time. Over and over and over again. All of those sacrifices, according to the fifth verse, God did not will them in any eternal, spiritual, true way. But He prepared a body. But a body hast thou prepared me. In those words, but a body hast thou prepared me, we have the most glorious mystery of godliness that there is at all. And that is that God made a man without a human father in order to suffer a human death for us. Look at Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. This is the great glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, I preached to you a subject that means a great deal to me coming from an Arminian background. And that is that our salvation is wrapped up in an eternal last will and testament. God wrote a last will and testament. The condition for death was stated. The testator had to die. The beneficiaries of this last will and testament were stated. All that I have chosen and given to Jesus Christ, mine elect. The benefits of the last will and testament were stated. Everlasting life and eternal inheritance, righteousness forever. Do you like a last will and testament like that? That's the doctrine of salvation that we believe in this church. And now I'm going to speak as a fool for a second to make the point. After God made this glorious document called the Everlasting Covenant, He looked at it and He realized He had a great problem. The condition for putting it into force was that the testator, it, who is the one who writes the will, had to die. Where's the problem? God cannot die. How in the world could God promise everlasting life to His elect <clears throat> by the means of death, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, and then He can't die? 
That is why we have Jesus Christ. It is that simple. That is why we have Jesus Christ, the God-man. Hebrews chapter 2 told us that Jesus Christ was made a little lower than the angels for... For what purpose? The suffering of death. Why was a man made called Jesus of Nazareth? That the Word of God joined in close union that became the God-man, God manifest in the flesh, for the suffering of death, which put the everlasting covenant into force because the testator died in the person of Jesus Christ. God and Jesus, the man, were so closely joined together <coughs> that it was one and the same as if God had died himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The testator died and that covenant went into force. Now, brethren, could any man have served the purpose? That's why we have Isaiah 7.14. Can, can you imagine a Hebrew mind reading Isaiah 7.14? Here's what Isaiah 7.14 says. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, can you imagine a Hebrew reading that? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. A virgin shall conceive. Not any man would have done. Why? Because any man that came from a man had a sin nature, he would have had to die for his own sins. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, conceived by the infinite, supernatural, and mysterious power of Almighty God in the conception of of our Savior, born of a virgin. This is the most glorious truth of the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God so that God could suffer death to put the everlasting covenant into force. These are simple elementary facts as to why the virgin birth was necessary. Look at Jeremiah 31, 22. I'm so thankful I can read the Old Testament with x-ray vision of some spectacles that Paul and the Spirit of God gives us. Do you remember when you used to read your comic books, boys, and they'd sell those x-ray glasses? Supposedly you could see through any... I won't tell you why you bought them or remind you. But remember those x-ray glasses? We thought we could see through things that they'd sell for a couple of dollars and a few box tops or bazooka wrappers. Paul gives us something like that. We're able to look back into the Old Testament and see things that a Hebrew would just have been lost with. Look at Jeremiah 31:22. Who knows? Maybe you Gentiles will be lost with this one. Jeremiah 31:22. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Now, what do you get out of that? I thought all men got here through a woman. I thought women have compassed millions and billions of men. God's created a new thing in the earth. A woman will compass a man. And what's the difference? There was no man that helped her compass a man. This is the miraculous, new, creation of the body 
of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus Christ in His human nature and body is a creation of God, just like we are the creation of God in His human body and nature. A woman shall compass a man. This is the mystery of godliness. The Apostle Paul says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. This is our religion, that God had an everlasting covenant, but someone had to suffer death to put it into force, and so we have a virgin birth, and we have the Son of God. You say, why is it called a mystery? Paul preaches lots of things that he calls mystery. Do you know why he calls them a mystery? Because in all the ages up to Paul, they were hidden. Look at Romans 16, 25. I could turn you to ten different places where he calls basic elementary facts of the gospel a mystery. Well, how is it a mystery? Wasn't revealed for 4,000 years, except in very obscure prophecies. It's been given to us and made plain. Romans 16, 25, this is a P.S. that Paul adds on to his epistle to the Romans. Do you know why it's a P.S.? His salutation is in verse 24 and his amen is in verse 24. And then he says in verse 25, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. What a P.S. Wouldn't you like to get a letter like that once in a while? With a P.S. like that? What a powerful statement. The mystery is simply the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is it a mystery? It isn't now, in that it, other than it's a revealed mystery, but for 4,000 years it was hidden and kept secret. And we file in every Sunday morning, file in Sunday evenings, file out, go home, and how much heed and how much love and how much dedication do we show to this message? God's created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. without controversy. You want to try to controvert me on this point? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Incredible mystery. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Brethren, look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Jesus is here said by Paul to have uttered these words when he came into the world, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Holding your finger there, turn back to Psalm 40. Keeping your place at Hebrews 10 and 5, turn back to Psalm 40. I want to read to you where the quote is taken from. Verse 6. Sacrifice and offering... Thou didst not desire, but a body hast thou prepared me. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. 
Is that what your Bibles read, brethren? Or do your Bibles agree with mine in saying the bizarre words, Mine ears hast thou opened? Now, wait a minute. Holding your finger at Psalm 40, come back to Hebrews 10.5. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Back to Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened. We have a problem, brethren, and it can only be solved in the Greek, and I don't know Greek, so let's go on. Somebody shoot me. Wing me. If you could read the tripe that is written about this use of Paul, of Psalm 40, it would gag you. Here is how the story goes. This is important. It's a little rabbit trail. Let me run it. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, we guess. How do you know? Let's assume that it was written in Hebrew. Old Testament was written... I have a drink of water. The machine pops on me. After Alexander the Greek, Alexander the Great, the Greek, overran the known world, Greek became the language that was spoken and used in writing. You know, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, all the schools of wisdom and education used by the Greeks used the Greek language. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Supposedly, about 250 B.C., Ptolemy II of Egypt, remember the Ptolemies were one of the generals that divided up the Greek Empire after Alexander's death, decided to enhance his library at Alexandria. He wanted to send to Jerusalem and get the holy writings of the Jews' religion. So they sent, supposedly, 72 learned elders of Zion from Jerusalem down to Alexandria. They stuck them all in individual rooms and gave them the Hebrew Old Testament to translate from Hebrew into Greek. And they all did it in just a few days. And then those men came out, and they lined up all that was written, and guess what? It was identical. Seventy-two men had translated in a couple of days the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language. And seventy men did it, or seventy-two. It is called the Septuagint. If you went to seminary or Bible college, you would hear the words Septuagint over and over and over again. Every commentary has to deal with this change from Psalm 40 to Hebrews chapter 10. Here's how they deal with it. And this is how the whole argument goes. Let me first of all preface it with a question. When you have read the New Testament and have seen where Jesus or Paul or anyone else quoted from the Old Testament, did you notice that there were word changes? Sometimes even a different emphasis in intent. Have you noticed that? The argument goes like this. The Septuagint became the common Bible of the Jewish people. So whenever Jesus Christ 
quoted the Old Testament, he was quoting the Septuagint. Whenever Peter quoted the Old Testament, he was quoting the Septuagint. Whenever Paul quoted the Old Testament, he was quoting the Septuagint. You say, well, does the Septuagint in the Old Testament look just like the New Testament? Yes. Does the Septuagint look differently than the Old Hebrew Old Testament? Yes. Now, their argument is that Ptolemy II started all that in 250 B.C., and that these men were blessed by God to take the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. There is a whole other school of evidence that shows that the Septuagint was written after the New Testament was written. Now do you know why it lines up with the New Testament? If you've got the New Testament already written, every place that the Old Testament was quoted, how would you want it worded? To match the New Testament quotation. You say, well, what should we believe about the Septuagint? Nothing. Who cares about the Septuagint? I don't care if there ever was a Septuagint. I want to show you with your English Bible, you can take care of Psalm 40 coming into Hebrews chapter 10. You say, I want to witness this. Mine ear hast thou opened, you can convert to but a body hast thou prepared me. What is the main thought that Paul is bringing forward Psalm 40 in Hebrews 10, 5 through 10? What is the main thought? It is Jesus Christ was willing to be a sacrifice by suffering death. That's the main thought. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He came willingly to be a substitutionary sacrifice through his own body. That point is, first of all, important. Second of all, if you have an ear, what else do you have? A body. Have you ever seen an ear without it? Maybe you have. But in general, now Peter and Christ once did, didn't they? Peter hacked a man's ear off when they came to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you've got an ear, you've got a body. That's just a general fact of human nature. If you've got a, an ear, you've got a body attached to it. Now come over to Isaiah 48, and let's, instead of looking at the Septuagint, read the English scriptures that God's given us. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 8. In this passage, God is telling the Jews, listen, I have told about things that were going to happen in your lifetime before you were even born. Now, isn't that proof that I'm God? Show me your idols that have done that. That's the context. In verse 8, the Lord says, Yea, thou heardest not, yea, thou knewest not. Yea, from that time that thine ear was not opened, for I knew that thou wouldest deal very treacherously and was called a transgressor from the womb. By looking at this verse and seeing that God is talking about, as he's talking about a nation, as if they were a single baby, he's saying, I knew you were a transgressor from the womb. So before that time, while you were in the womb, before you were born, I told about things that were going to happen during your lifetime so that you could know I was God. 
But notice the analogy and the comparison that we have in this text. What is like unto being in the womb? An ear unopened. A baby in the womb has its ears basically stopped up with the fluid that's held in the mother's womb. They can hear sounds, but they cannot hear anything with understanding. It is not until they're born, the water rushes away, and the child is then exposed to the air where those distinct sounds can travel through the air and land on their audio nerves. That's in this text in your English Bible. That comparison to being in the womb is having your ears stopped up. A comparison to being born is having your ears opened. Go two chapters later. Isaiah chapter 50. What was Paul's thought in Hebrews 10? Jesus Christ was willing to come and be a sacrifice. What does a sacrifice require? Blood. What does blood require? A body. Isaiah 50 and verse 5. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Who is speaking in Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6? The Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, I was not rebellious, what does that mean? I was willing. I was willing. I was not rebellious. What else does he say? The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. The opening of the ear requires a body. The opening of the ear refers to birth. The opening of the ear refers to having a person in a physical body be willing to do something. He opened my ear, and I was not rebellious to what I heard. I went and did the will of my Father in heaven. I did not turn back from all that was facing me in my sacrificial sufferings on the cross. I don't have more time for that rabbit trail. That, to me, is one of the most beautiful things in the Word of God I've found in the last few days. You ought to read, you ought to read a commentator who relies on the Septuagint, try to figure out, was it the Old Testament that was wrong, or was it the Septuagint that was wrong? What should it be? Brethren, you hold in your hands the Word of God, and we believe it by faith. Paul took the words, Mine ear hast thou opened, and he interpreted those for us, and we have evidence as to the nature of the interpretation. And guess what the audience that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews to knew about Isaiah 48, 8, and Isaiah 55 through 6. And if that is an idiom or a figure of speech in a language, guess what language it's in? Hebrew. Who would understand it? Hebrews. I love my English Bible. That doesn't bother me a bit. You know, I love the fact that it says, Mine ear hast thou opened in Isaiah 40, and it says, But a body hast thou prepared me in Hebrews 10. Do you know why? Because I love to watch people trip, fall, slide down, and skin knees, elbows, faces, and noses up as they try to mess with God's Word. Let them be ashamed 
and confounded is what we read later in what psalm? Psalm 40? Just a coincidence, brethren. Just a coincidence. Back to Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus came into the world to do the will of His Father. Lo, I come to do Thy will, O God. That's in verse 7. Lo, I come to do Thy will, O God. Now it says that in the volume of the book it is written of me. What book? Where is it written? About Jesus Christ coming to do the will of God and offering His body as a sacrifice for sin. You're holding it in your hands. It's written there from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 all the way down to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. And everywhere in between. Jesus said to the Jews, Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they, that is the Scriptures, do what? Testify of me. <clears throat> we could turn to so many passages of Scripture on this particular point. Let's try Luke 24 just for one. Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> In the volume of the book, it is written of me. There is a book that God, that God has given to us, and it is written many times over how that Jesus Christ would come and offer His body for us. Luke 24, look at verse 25. Jesus is walking with two on the road to Emmaus. Then He said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. The Old Testament, you say it's obscure. I say amen. But it does talk about Jesus Christ. From Moses on, all the way through the minor prophets, it's a record of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 45, speaking, let's get verse 44. Speaking to his disciples now, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. In the volume of the book it is written of me, the Bible had it written throughout. Now, why did Jesus Christ stick that in, in Psalm 40, and why did Paul use it again in Hebrews 10? To remind the Jews that if they'd think about the whole Old Testament, it was always speaking of someone yet to come that would put away sin. From Genesis chapter 3, when Eve and Satan and Adam heard about the seed of the woman that would bruise the serpent's head, if they would think, in the volume of the book it was written over and over. In Moses' day, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up a prophet unto you like unto me. The people will hear him in everything. Those that don't hear him, he'll destroy. Someone was coming that the Bible spoke of, and it was the Lord Jesus Christ. It was that book. Indeed, there's other books mentioned in Scripture. There's the book of God's providence. David spoke of that in Psalm 139 and verse 16, that all my members were written in thy book before they were ever fashioned. Is Jesus Christ written in that book? Surely. There's a book I read called The Book of Life of the Lamb Slain. Do you think Jesus Christ is written in there anywhere? It's called His book. It's the Book of Life of the Lamb Slain. 
And then there's the book of the everlasting covenant that only Jesus Christ could open. He must have something to do with that book also. Back to Hebrews, the 10th chapter. So Paul pulls a quotation from Psalm 40, showing that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. God didn't want animal sacrifices. He made a body, and Jesus Christ came to do the will of God. And that's what we believe about our salvation, that Jesus Christ did come to do God's will. He said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Indeed, those words are true. Now look at verse 8. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not. Paul repeats himself here by quoting the prophecy from, from Psalm 40 again. And he said, above, when he said. Now, have you ever written a paragraph like that in a letter? As I mentioned above, or as I described above? Well, that's all Paul's doing. Above. What does he mean by above? Well, go up your page and see. Move up your page to the previous three verses. Above. When I said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein. He quotes from Psalm 40. When the person speaking in Psalm 40, when he said that God was not happy or satisfied or pleased with animal sacrifices, now verse, nine, now verse 9, then said he, I come to do thy will, O God. What is happening right here is that Paul is saying, while the subject of animal sacrifices was under consideration, when a discussion of animal sacrifices was introduced, then the speaker said, I come to do thy will, O God. What does that mean? If he said, I come to do thy will, O God, while he's talking about animal sacrifices, that must mean he's going to offer himself a substitute sacrifice to put away the ones that were not acceptable to God. Paul's just breaking that prophecy into two parts to show the force of the words, I come to do thy will. God's will was not in animal sacrifices. God's will was in the body thou hast prepared me. Can anybody find the words of Paul in verse 8? Of course, above when he said, there's others which are offered by the law. Those are Paul's words. You might want to underline those. Paul is just adding a little commentary. All the sacrifices offered by the law, God didn't have pleasure in. Do you know what the bottom line is to a Hebrew? God was not pleased with law religion. Lo, I come to do thy will. He goes on in verse 9. And it says, He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. That is the first covenant or the old covenant or Moses system was taken away that Jesus Christ could establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all in verse 10. That sanctification in verse 10 is in what phase of sanctification? What phase of sanctification is in Hebrews 10.10? Legal, because it's a sanctification that was obtained through the offering of Christ's body on the cross. What does it mean to be sanctified? 
to be made holy, fit for God. Jesus Christ on the cross put away our sins legally so that legally we are holy. Now, when Jesus Christ died and made you legally holy, were you holy? You didn't exist yet. You weren't even a sinner yet, practically. Not until you were born. And then you came in, con you came in union with the first Adam, where you made a sinner by nature, and then God the Holy Spirit has to sanctify you vitally. This is legal sanctification, the putting away of sins. Do you know what? There was no legal sanctification under the Old Covenant. None. None. Because legal sanctification is the putting away of sins in God's mind. When we talk about legality, we're talking about in God's mind, God's way of looking at a situation or a person. Sanctified means God now looks at us as being legally holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, how do men become legally holy according to the text? What is the means? The death of Christ. But what brings us in union with that death? What is the basis that ties us into that death according to Hebrews 10.10? 10? By the which will by the which will. There's a will involved that makes men legally holy through the offering of Jesus Christ. Which will is it, brethren? Is it the sinner's will? Is it the minister's will? Is it the pope's will? Or is it the will of God that has just been described to us? Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. By the which will which, directing us right back to that will, we are sanctified. Do I need to turn you to places this morning to prove that? They're in the outline. There's many of them. We all love them. He's predestinated us according to the good pleasure of His will, who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So then it is not of Him that willeth. What will's involved? The will of God in that everlasting covenant by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For all what? Take it any way you want. Once for all time has that been taught? Forever. Once for all sins. Any sins left out? Billy Graham would have you believe that that Jesus did not die for the sin of unbelief. But this book doesn't teach us anything like that. It says that all the sins were put away by one offering. And for all of his children, not one of them will be lost. He will say, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me, all of God's elect, will be wrapped up in that will through the death of Jesus Christ. Verses 11 through 18 are very quickly concluding arguments. Verse 11 Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. After showing the glory of Christ's body and what Christ did in coming to do what was pleasing to God, having shown that animal sacrifices were not pleasing, Paul then jumps back to take one final look at the ridiculous sacrifices of the law. Those priests have to stand daily, every day, 
They have to stand. You say, is that important? Underline it. Underline the word stand. I'll show you why in a second. Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Over and over the same sacrifice. Now, if the sacrifice had any efficacy to it, would you offer it the second time? Why'd they offer it the millionth time? You know, we have McDonald's that says 65 billion burgers sold. They could have put something like that outside the tabernacle. 65 billionth sheep offered. You say you're speaking awful lowly of the Old Testament religion. Thank you. It is lowly. Compared to what Jesus Christ did, it is lowly. They offer, Paul's ridiculing it right here. And remember, brethren, he's writing to Hebrews who have a tendency to want to go back into it. And he's ridiculing it. They just offer it over and over again. It can't take away sins. It's only a shadow. Verse 12, but this man. I've tried to preach that to you, that Jesus Christ is not some nebulous spirit. He's more than God. He's a man. But this man. Not Aaron, not Levi, not any other high priest, but this man. After he had offered one sacrifice. Now, how often times did he do that? Once. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That Old Testament altar, I can't remember exactly right now, brethren. I'm sorry, it just slipped me. I can't remember if it was two cubits high or three cubits high. But anyway, it was high. It was high enough that you couldn't offer sitting down. And Paul's playing on that fact in verse 11 by saying that those priests had to stand. You might want to underline stand, then underside sat in verse 12 and draw a line. Paul's just ridiculing the fact they had to stand there doing it over and over again all the time. It was a dead ritual. There was nothing to it. Jesus Christ made one sacrifice and sat down. His job was done. And remember, he, he introduced that point in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. He is summarizing arguments right now. Chapter 1 and verse 3, he said, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Work was done. Sin had been put away. Verse 13, From henceforth, from the moment he sat down, what was he expecting? Till his enemies be made his footstool. You say, aren't they his footstool already? Indeed they are. But he hasn't ground his feet on them yet. That's the big difference. He's just resting his feet on them. There is a day coming in which he will take to him all his power and visibly manifested in this world and he will grind his enemies under his feet. Where was that statement first introduced? That Jesus Christ is sitting on a throne waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Hebrews chapter 1 about verse 13. Verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Jesus Christ has made everyone that he sanctified in his death perfect forever. Sacrifice for sin has come to an end. With Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. And then Paul introduces, repeats, what the covenant promise from Jeremiah 31 had prophesied. 
Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, and I'm not going to elaborate on this point, I'll just make it, what does that grammatical structure mean when it says, for after that he had said before? He is breaking Jeremiah 31 into two pieces. After God said, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. Then the Lord said, the benefits of the covenant. There's two parts to the prophecy in Jeremiah 31. There will be a new covenant and the benefits of the new covenant. After he said before there would be a covenant, then he said, verse 17, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. See, Paul has proven in verses 5 down through verse 14 that Jesus Christ by one offering forever put away sin. Paul simply repeats the promise of the covenant. Remember, Hebrews, that was what the covenant promised. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Brethren, that's being made perfect. The Old Testament was a system of remembering sins. The New Testament is a system where even God Himself forgets sins. What superiority under the New Covenant? Verse 18, His concluding final statement, Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Everything to do with that Old Testament economy that had to do with the putting away of sin, it was no longer necessary because the remission of sins had taken place. They were put away. They were forgotten by God. And as Paul does in the book of Romans, as he does in the book of Ephesians, beginning with verse 19, he says, Therefore, after all this doctrinal instruction as to the glory of Christ and the privilege of the gospel, the privilege of the New Testament, he then draws a conclusion beginning in Hebrews 10, 19, and runs it to the end of this book as to our duty to dedicate ourselves to the Savior that so perfectly put away our sins even from the memory of God. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Whether that offering be the offering of the Old Testament Levitical rites or whether that offering be the offering of the Mass on Roman altars every day of the week, there is no more offering for sin. Jesus Christ totally put it away. Brethren, there is hope of eternal inheritance for you. Eternal glory awaits you because of this man, Christ Jesus. May he be honored and praised in everything that's been said this morning.